Like the weather, like the climate, like the economic model, these things are going to come whether you like it or not. And I think preparing for those eventualities is just sensible. That was Gabrielle Chan, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. Here at The Regenerative Journey, we know that good health is related to good food and good practices, but understand that sometimes the right food choices are quite hard to put into place. But our good buddy, Cindy O'Meara at the Nutrition Academy is helping people break old habits to create a much healthier lifestyle. So in support of what she's doing, we're offering a $100 discount to all our listeners. Simply enrol in their functional nutrition course and enter the coupon CHARLIE100, that's CHARLIE100, the Nutrition Academy. Say goodbye to old food habits and hello to a much healthier, happier life. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. plug for our workshops coming up in December. Uh, the first one is at, at the farm at Byron Bay in the northern uh, rivers of New South Wales on the 2nd and 3rd of December. And then our next one is the next week, 7th and 8th of December at, the, at Hannah Minow here at Burrawa in the south of Slopes of New South Wales. It's our two-day introduction to biodynamics course, uh, theory in the morning, crack in the afternoon. It's two days. Jump on charliearnett.com.au, the events page there, to book your tickets. Sneak these workshops in before the end of the year, before the festive season, and I hope to see you there. And this week's episode of The Regenerative Journey is with Gabrielle Chan. I had the pleasure of sitting here in her garden, just out of Harden in the southwest slopes of New South Wales, um, on her farm with her her husband, the farmer. Um, And we talked about... uh, (laughs) as we do, her life, um, her, her move into, um, into media, and which is, a, which is a industry she is still fairly and squarely in, and her move into the country, not, having, not coming from a country background, um, a lot of political sort of overtones in a really good way, in a really interesting way. Um, we talked about, and, and I guess her impression or her experiences um, moving to the, fa- to the, to the farm, and, and most importantly, the way that she has put this all into a book called Why the Fuck? Oh, hang on, sorry. Why we should, why we should give a fuck about farming. Um, it was actually really fun. The rain was just starting to sort of drizzle down. We had blue wrens and birds and sheep and all sorts of cool things happening while we were running this um, this interview. It's a bit shorter than usual um, uh, and uh, she had to run out the door. Um, <laughs> we could have talked for another hour. But I hope you enjoy this interview with Gabrielle Jan as much as I did. Oh, what a lovely sound. What bird was that? I don't know. I'm not a twitcher. <laughs> Should be. I know I know all the sounds, but I don't know who they are. Well, the good news is they're here. 
Yeah. And the other good news is we're finally seated still, Gabrielle Chan. Thank you for your time and welcome to the Regenerative Journey. Welcome to the deck. Thank you. Of your cottage? Yeah. Cottage beside the house. Yeah. In your home, just outside of Harden. Yes. In New South Wales. Yes. South Here South I am. <laughs> We've had a bit of a mad, well, I've had a bad, mad morning. Both of us have had a mad day. <laughs> I'm running late. I hit some roadworks and I won't say who, but someone put some diesel in my petrol wagon. Oh, God. So we had it worked out. So, But here we are. <clears throat> I know time is limited. And um, Gabby, let's start by just looking out in front of us mm-hmm. and just um, tell me <clears throat> what it means to be sitting here. Is this, is this your happy place? Maybe not this very deck, but you're looking at something that makes you happy? Absolutely. It makes me incredibly happy. And it makes me even more happy that I didn't expect that I would land here. Only because it just never entered my consciousness. I'm a city girl, I was born in the suburbs, and I never expected to end up on a farm. And you know when life takes you to places that you don't expect to go, it creates a sort of amplification of the intensity, whether it's happy or sad maybe, I don't know. But certainly my experience has been happy. I was going to say, hopefully on the, you know, there's net happiness there. Absolutely. (laughs) There's more than net happiness. Do you want to explain net happiness by looking out there? I mean, there's some amazing um, exotic introduced species trees this is a pretty established kind of garden, isn't it? It's been here a bit for a bit. It is. At, uh, my mother-in-law was a keen gardener and this is the kind of bones of it because she had lots of garden beds and she she was, she was won prizes for her garden and I'm just like not even a gardener's boot lace. <laughs> so the trees are left and one of her signatures were the black ironbarks you can see mm. Uh, and they go all the way up the driveway and we've planted a few more uh, and they're just gorgeous. I just love the black trunks of them. And then there's exotic trees as well. There's old, the old o- oleander. The kids call him Frank. This one I here. don't know why. That yeah. is the biggest oleander I've ever seen. Yeah, it's massive. It is enormous. It's, yeah. Don't stir your soup with a, with a branch. You I know, know the, my you know, the husband's holly. always saying... Accusing me of possibly stirring his tea with a with a leaf. <laughs> oh, I there was a case that, yeah, yeah, there was a case where a woman did that on purpose. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm just stirring with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> I had a story where a guy um, had a um, went camping with some people, and he did just that. He was stirring some soup or stew on the on the stove. Just did no idea and stirred it, and of course, bingo, they're all. Feet up. Terrible. But anyway. <clears throat> no, yeah. We, yeah. we won't do that. No, no, no. no. Well, I know not to accept a cup of tea from you next yes. time. If, an, if we even get through this That's and right. there's the next time. Yeah. Um, and beautiful, you've got some beautiful desert ash down there. Yep. And um, the, oh, not Lebanon cedar. Are they Lebanon cedar? Yeah, they, they are. are. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. So let's um, go back in time, if we may, um, to... I mean, this this podcast is called The Regenerative Journey and it's about understanding 
the tips and tricks and tension events and moments in time that are significant for you and sort of understanding, you know, well, our listeners, for, for them to take some gold, dig some nuggets up and, um, and, and take them home. Where do you want to start? I mean, how far back do you want to go? Were there, were there some significant childhood moments that, that, that may have sort of steered you to where you are now? Not really. Take us back to Sydney. No. <laughs> no, there's nothing. Let's just jump to, you know. No, no, no. Sydney, I mean, the, 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 yeah, I was in Sydney and I was, uh, I went into the media and I went into politics and then I meet this. You were a child for a while, though. I was a child. <laughs> I was a child. Gone straight it is to, true. Did you go to school? <laughs> I, did, I did go to school. Mm. Um, I was a child, but I had no connection to place. Mm. And I think that's the thing that this place has taught me is that connection to place is really important. I was raised as a kind of global citizen. My dad is uh, Chinese-Singaporean. Uh, we were raised to be educated and be comfortable wherever we were in the world. And I think my political, uh, well, my career as a political journalist taught me that there were some people who were connected to place and some people that were global citizens. And there are some people who are both, of course. Mm. But um, I think that connection to place became a really important understanding for me, not only in my political reporting, but in my understanding of landscape and, uh, and communities. And I didn't have that in the city and I have that now where we are, and that was, I think, that's a real gift. Is it, is it a thing, does that happen because one lives in the city or is it, is it more, more of a personal family cultural thing? Um, I mean, I'm, you know, is it a general thing or is it, is it just your, your circumstance? I think it's partly my circum- circumstance. Uh, I, I think people do if they're in the city and have lived in a community for a long time or deliberately go out and make community connections. Absolutely, they are connected to place. But part of this was a sort of aspirational, I think, um, aspirational journey of uh, a migrant family uh, where education was really important, um, getting ahead was really important and so that stuff about community was not so important. Mm. And because as a child you don't know how different your childhood is to everyone else because you always think your childhood is normal, normal. Mm. I, don't, I can't contrast it with anyone else's really. And how was nature there somewhere? Um, was there trips into you know, what you would call nature or, or you know, um, that, that in kind of environment for any particular reason? There was uh, my childhood from probably first class onwards was spent uh, in a newly developed suburb called Bellrose and the house backed on to bush. And as kids, we spent all our time in the bush um, catching tadpoles you know, running around, running loose, you know, getting around in rainwater, storm drains and doing all those dangerous things that, that you're sounds, not supposed to do. But that's kind of, but that's, that's kind of um, not dissimilar to, you know, 
Yeah, being out here. Being out here. Yeah. 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 Open space. Yeah. Nature, trees, dirt, yeah. water. We had bushfires that came up to the back fence. Like mm. that was a scary time. Uh, and so there was a sense of nature um, from that time, I guess from six or seven onwards. Mm. Um, but it wasn't something, it was something I was drawn to as a kid, but wasn't something I took with me as I got older and turned into a horrible teenager and went into a career in the media. What was what the horrible teenager bit? Was that um, you... Is that a particular Gabby thing or is that just, you know... I've got a terrible case of oppositional defiance disorder. <laughs> Explain that. Yeah, As in, my husband I haven't, I haven't, heard, I haven't heard that. that. I haven't heard that one before. That's a, that's a, so if someone, you know, you if someone like tells you no, yeah. then I'll have to do it. Or yes. if someone tells me this is the case, I'll have to find a reason why it's not the case. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of journalists have that. Uh, you know, that uh, propensity to push for weaknesses in any statement system. Uh, And, you know, that's essentially the book. It's just like what are the weaknesses in this thing we called farming? Why do we do things the way we do? How does that happen? What Mm. culture is that? And that's all my oppositional defiance disorder is that is that is there curiosity in there or is it or is it sort of not curiosity because for me curiosity is kind of a positive thing is it curious was it curiosity or was it like i'm actually just going to press some buttons and get some people no totally totally curiosity Mm. so i want to in order to understand something i want to be able to unpack it and put it together Mm. like a um an engine or uh, anything that you're curious about the way it works. So does this stand, does this system, whether it's an economic system or a farming system or a social system, does it stand pulling apart and shaking upside down and then putting back together? Like would you put it back together in the same way as you found it? Before we get to the book, what so you you were a horrible teenager, and then you your words not mine, mm-hmm. and then you were um, finished school. You said before you you, you mentioned um, got into media. Yep, went yeah. to uh, why uh, curiosity, yeah. I think, and um, and good luck, and started as a as a copy girl at News Limited. And got a cadetship on the Australian and did my media training there. Spent some time on the Telegraph. Uh, the telly. Spent, what were you doing on the telly? I was <laughs> medical reporter at really? the telly, yeah. And I did, a, um, I did all sorts of things, general features. You have to do everything, you know, when you're a young journo. And I, I got sent to Hong Kong to the South China Morning Post for a couple of months. So that was pretty interesting for me, particularly as someone with Chinese heritage going there. I think they joked at the time it was sending coal to Newcastle. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, was that something you chose to do, or they they just made some big assumption there, or what? No, was the... no, 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 no. It was a it was a prize for um, 
I've forgotten what it was. I think it was a cadet of the year or something like oh, that. You, know, you remember just, what that was. No, no, no. Been, it was like I can't remember whether it was a yearly thing mm. or whether it was the whole cadetship thing. But anyway, it was a prize of sorts. and You'd done just, something good. Yeah, yeah, it just happened to be me. And so um, where, how long were you in, in that world, in that particular kind of um, media Environment. I mean, not that you've ever really stepped out of it, but you know, what what was the next sort of um, chapter there? So from there, uh, I worked at the telly for a couple of years, and then I decided to go overseas, and I went to New York, and worked in New York for a while uh, at the Canadian consulate of all places, mm-hmm. doing arts promotion. That was for a year, and then I came back and went back to. Where did I go from there? I worked as a press secretary for a little while for um, a Liberal state minister, Peter Collins. He was arts minister and treasurer at the time. Mm. And after that, I went back into the media, went back to the Oz, and uh, one fateful night met a farmer. Now, you, you, rec- you refer to that farmer as the farmer. Mm. And I, it took me a while to actually, actually, I had to introduce myself to the farmer to then know his name because I couldn't find much reference to the farmer's real name. Were we allowed to even say his real name? Was that like a secret? No, it's like 007. Well, he know. looks a bit like 007. <laughs> <laughs> and his work gear. No. no. I thought he was going to pull out a little, you know, piece and do me in there for a second. <laughs> no. That, Who are you? Th- that was about, you know, when you have separate careers as uh, – partners or um, married couples and you choose this kind of um, occupation that really the other person hasn't chosen Mm. and that's me writing about stuff related to the farmer's life and he is just a poor bastard that has to go along with it. And so I... Exposed. I have to protect, you know, I wanted to separate, Mm. you know, what he does and what I do and it's so that it's not reflected back on him. My madness is not reflected back on him, I guess. And so when you talk about the farmer, is it it more, not, is a bit less personal and more sort of generic, as in, you know, a typical farmer, whatever that is. I I mean, what is well, do you know, like no. you can't, you know more than anyone that what is a typical farmer? Well, there's pig, you can pigeonhole farmers very pretty easily and there's and different pigeonholes, not the same one yeah. because there's so many and I think that the, you know, the, the, the um, not the industry, I don't like calling it industry, the, the career path, the vocation of farming attracts interesting people. And it's, it is hard to pin, you know, it's easy for people to, to pigeonhole them, I think, but really if you dig into it, they're very unique. And that's, thankfully, they're very unique because mm. they're all living in unique environments. And they if they are. were all the same, then they wouldn't, you know, only one in ten would actually fit in their environment, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely true. And quite, like, quite contradictory in a lot of ways. Quite unique thinkers, but also mm. quite um, aware of, you know, well, in some cases, um, conforming or mm. conservative. Um, because or? Yeah, expectation, you know, local culture, all of these things I think play into the way a farmer relates to 
um, both the land and the people around him. And family so you, culture too. Sorry, family. Mm, family oh, totally. culture. And that's Massive. something you can't, I mean, I think it's harder to escape a family culture in the country maybe. Not that I've you know, lived with a family in the city to compare, but my sense is um, whilst there's open spaces that you think you could run, run away into, there's a sense of isolation. And I mean, I guess, you know, um, marrying into um, a farming family, how, how was that? Well, uh, can we talk about that? Is that a secret? It's not really a secret. <laughs> I can't talk about it a lot. <laughs> you can write about it, but you can't talk about it. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it, it's different here because the, the family wasn't here. Like, I'm mm. conscious that a lot of people have a different experience where they move. They are the, the wicked or not daughter-in-law that moves into a family culture that has extended family around them. Um, I didn't have my extended family around me, so I'm conscious that that might be different to mm. moving into, say, a multi-generational farming family um, that more that is more common or that you hear about more often. Um, but, yeah, definitely, like, completely different family cultures, completely mm. different. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that happens with lots of partnerships and marriages, doesn't it? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, I've only been in one marriage, yep. one partnership, like, well, proper, proper mm. one. Mm. Um, so I can't compare either. But, um, yeah, look, everything is unique. And I, I think, um, and I have lots of friends who have, um, you know, had, you know, wives who got married and wives have come into those situations, their family situations, fairly um, hardcore multi-generational stuff and friends who have married into that and it is it can be very challenging mm. you know it seems I don't know more often than not um, it is more challenging than not you know yeah. that that especially if that person has has moved in has not had the the foundation or the grounding or the they just don't understand how we do it in the country you mm. know? that's that that's a real thing mm. Yeah. But you didn't necessarily have that to do with... Well, I didn't, but having said that, like my first book, Rusted Off, which was about the political disruption in rural seats, I'm sure a lot of people looked at that and said, what would you know about the country? Did they? Yeah, I think so. And you said, shut up, read the book? Well, no, I mean, that, no, you know... You know country culture, Charlie, mm. better than anyone. No one actually said it to me. No, but I would suggest, though, you having, I mean, this is the thing about whether you're you know, marrying into a farming family or you are a new farmer to the to the rural scene, you're not bringing paradigms with it, you know. So you you, you came to the whole situation with a, with a fresh pair of eyes and probably saw it for what it was. Well, yeah, or not. You know, I, I had a particular view, um, which I was prepared to write down, which was, you know, like pretty scary to mm. be able to write about your local community and have it live on a page and without being able to change anything after the fact. So there was that. But I guess I was naive enough to think that it might add something um, to the debate, the political debate, particularly at that time. And how did it go down with the local community, can I ask? I think it was okay. Mm. Um, 
people still, s- you're still here. I'm still here, and people said they liked it. But again, hey, there's, the, hey, there's the farmer behind. The I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> have, um, I wouldn't have uh, heard about it necessarily if um, if they didn't like it. You know, they wouldn't have said it to me. No, well, I didn't get any bad feedback, so I think you're pretty right. Um, so tell me, um, let's get to the book. I'm mm. conscious of time. The farmers just walked behind us. I just got to drop a rain, did I? Yeah. Um, the farmers just walked behind us with his with his towel and dungarees there. So he's. I think you've got to go to. You're going somewhere at some point. <laughs> so let's get to the book. Um, I'm not allowed to swear, but you are. Yeah. Do you want to tell us <laughs> the name of the book? The name of the book is Why You Should Give a Fuck About Farming. <gasps> How rude! I know it is rude, isn't it? I saw that and I just loved it. I think it's most appropriate. Um, why? Why should we? Because farming and landscape management is exposed to all of the world's existential problems. That is climate change, soil loss, water shortages, pandemics and zoonotic diseases, natural disasters, political disruption. Like farming is exposed, I would argue, like no other industry. And we often in Australia, even though we have this kind of white settler economy that rode on the sheep's back, we think we've got the food and farming problem fixed because we've been doing it here for a long time and it's such an important part of our mythos. But in a lot of ways and in the political debate that I was seeing, people consider it as this kind of quaint cottage industry that wasn't too important. It was just like, oh, it's 2.5% of GDP and, you know, it employs 320,000 people and that's not much in the grand scheme of things when you compare it to, say, education or tourism or any of those other industries. But it is at the heart of how we go forward as a nation, how we manage the continent and how we feed ourselves. And that plays into health, that plays into communities, plays into all sorts of things that I think makes it really important and worth thinking about deeply. Was there a point that, was there a catalytic event, a tension event, something that happened that you went, I've got to write this book or someone should write this book or there's a whole lot that needs to be identified here? Or was it just like your... Yeah, was it like a slow release drip and suddenly you went, oh. So after I wrote the first book, Rusted Off, in 2018, it had one chapter on agriculture and that chapter covered just like three things, climate change, land use and kind of political um, frustration with regulation and the way farming is seen in the political debate. And... Then I went back to my regular reporting and I was reporting in areas around federal and state elections where people were increasingly cranky, farmers were increasingly cranky about about uh, what they saw as uh, a playing field that was nowhere near level. Mm. So the economic model, they felt squeezed by that economic model and they felt squeezed by global forces And I thought, why? so why has this economic farming model developed and does it service 
for the next couple of decades as we're going into a changing climate, as we're seeing all these issues develop on our landscape, as we're seeing issues develop in our food supply, not just in the health of the food but also in the supply chains that, that deliver the food. We, we have all these sort of elements in this farming system that don't really they've just they've just kind mm. of landed us here in this place and if we thought about them again would we still do the same thing is that economic model working like what what did you do in your research i mean what what is i guess there's a lot of different versions of that economic model and what's the definition of working but in your view you know does it does it need to change can it change i think it needs to change because i think we value the well we only value part of the chain right so my contention is that basically the only way that farmers can get a pay rise right now is to increase their yield largely you know the commodity growers mm. a lot of family farmers which the political system says every drought that they value the mum and dad farmers, they value the family businesses, that those families that are largely in the middle of very large companies or very small companies are hollowing out. That's what I think. And, you know, there are a lot of people in, well, there are a number of people in the, in the book who, who back that up, who do, you know, agricultural research for a living. And so if that hollowing out is happening, where, where does that land us in a decade or two's time? Like does that land us in a, in a landscape where, you know, there are fewer larger farming companies that control more of the landscape? If that's the case, how they manage that landscape is really important to us as a nation, uh, not only... Um, for us as a society, but for our environment and for our food supply. And is that what we want? And some people might say yes, because I want dollar milk. I want the cheapest product I can get. I need, I just want cheap mints, cheap pasta, all the stuff that ran off the shelves when lockdown happened. And, and if that's the case, you know, like I'm 55, my kids... I worry about my kids and my grandkids, but, you know, if that's what Australia decides, go for it. But uh, I just think it I, – I wouldn't like to see that outcome. That um, makes me think about a Joel Salton quote, um, which is wonderful, where he says, you know, we have a choice as eaters, <clears throat> you know, either pay the farmer now or the doctor later, you know, and that's kind of – kind of the way I look at that, you know. We do have a choice, don't we? We do. And the other thing I would say in that vein about the economic model is that, you know, this whole deregulation arc started from the time I was a baby journalist in the 80s watching the Hawke-Keating government uh, and they stripped away a lot of the protections of agriculture that made it a very uncompetitive industry. And there were some good things that happened then People needed to shake down, um, businesses needed to get more efficient. But in that arc, I think competition policy that was supposed to increase competition actually decreased competition. And we saw that, we see that playing out now, you know, the number of businesses, uh, farming businesses dropping, 
we're all told get big or get out. Um, that scale story uh, has been has underlied basically productivity uh, in Australian farming in the last couple of decades, and that productivity now is flatlining. And why is that flatlining? Because people are starting to think about their natural capital. You know, what? How much ground cover have you got? Um, how much soil organic carbon have you got? Are your waterways clean? Uh, you know, how how are you thinking about your landscape? And that is happening because we don't value that stuff. Well, I guess it's, you know, we're so used to valuing things dollars and cents yeah. on a balance sheet, aren't we? And then there's there's this whole new natural capital accounting, mm. which is, I guess, embryonic in some ways, but really important, isn't it? I it, think. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, you can argue it both ways because natural capital accounting is, is essentially putting a scientific measure on everything in your ecosystem. So, you know, the quality of your water, the number of species on your land, um, how much of your soil is covered, how many trees you've got, uh, all of those things. And so there's that scientific measure, right? So no one argues with that. What people argue with in developing a system that puts that into your books the way you have a tractor on your books or a shed on your books is whether you can put a dollar value on that. Mm. So can you put a dollar value on how many trees you have on your farm? And then what does it mean if someone comes along and, and says, okay, I'll cut down all those trees and we'll grow new trees, you know, 200 k's away, different species. Mm. Like there's lots of bigger, it's, it's, it's a very kind of controversial <coughs> um, topic. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table and we look forward to sharing a yarn with you. Now let's get back to this week's episode. It's yeah, it is. It is. It's complex, and and I think that some elements of it are just not kosher. Like I, I have a bit of a problem with the offset, the whole offset thing. You know, the people corporates can go, oh, okay, I can. That's cool. I can keep emitting if I plant some trees in India. You know, and I, I, I and that's another. I've mentioned a number of times, you know, they're, you know, in Australia there are businesses that hang on about how wonderful their their carbon sort of um, benchmark, not so much benchmarks, their, their, their net zero, or is it, I, I always get mixed up. Carbon with po- neutral. Carbon neutral mm. or carbon negative. Mm. Was it carbon positive? Carbon negative. And I go, wow, you know, that's cool. So they must be planting trees and sort of that's all part of the auditing. I just go, no, they're planting trees in India. It's like, mm. uh, but you're on a farm, like you're one of the few businesses or industries where you can actually directly impact on farm in two ways. 
you know, well, a number of different ways. And that, to me, and, and, and look, it's a start and it's fine and it gets people having that conversation and, and, you know, I think there's the positive way to look at it is that if those businesses, and I think that is actually happening, they've gone in going, beauty, we can offset our crimes and then they actually understand there's actually more to it and that they sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a foot in the door, you know, and if it's a foot in the door then maybe that's okay. Yeah, I mean, what I like about it is it makes people think about what what they value because mm. at the moment the message that we get is that all of these trees are worth nothing, like they have zero. So you can knock one over with a bulldozer and that's zero value. Obviously they do have a value, but how you value them is a big question. But I think even getting people to think about, you know, we value a $2 T-shirt from Woolies, why do we value it at $2 if you don't value what that tree's worth? Like it's mm. it's an important conversation starter, I think, um, to get people thinking about what's important in the world and what we can't live without. And I think banks are banks are looking at that. You Definitely. Know, green loans and I think there's – and there'll be some competition, I trust, between the big banks and the – smaller banks and the community banks because I think there's – and I hope that's a sincere um, interest. I mean, look, their bread and butter is making money. That's their bag. But I think it can be done in a way that is really positive, I trust. Yeah, there's a lot of scepticism, I have to say, in farming, um, in sections of the farming industry about um, how it will roll out and whether it becomes another vehicle for ticket clipping on the way through. Um on farm on on farm businesses and so and I think some of those fears are legitimate and you're starting to see these kind of uh, carbon aggregators come out that say you know I can sell you Charlie um, uh, I'll 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 manage your carbon mm. account for you and I'll take you know 20 to 40 percent along the way and um, you can have the rest and you're signing up to things that maybe you're not clear on what they are and what they mean long-term down the track. So I think there are a lot of potholes. Yeah, and that's another conversation, you know, about, I mean, sovereignty and I, I just, I'm just a bit sus on the fine print, if there is even fine print and, and what that means, um, you know, and, and, you know, how long really are you connected with those um with those providers or those agents, you know, and, and, and who are they connected to that you somehow, I mean, there's, you know, taking that to the nth degree is like, well, could someone I don't even know who's not on this contract basically pitch up to my place because I've signed a contract and say, you know what, we actually own your land because, yeah, you sort of sold us the carbon and we've got our foot in the door, but, you know, you know we actually, we can actually choose what to do here now which is all a bit scary. Maybe that's another conversation at the time. It's such a big conversation and it's happening now in the political debate just this week mm. about how soil and carbon farming is going to be a big kind of source of or a big carbon sink going forward. So, yeah, it's, it's one you're going to have lots of conversations on, I suspect, in the future. Well, I remember going to Young, the Young S&C Club, in about um, 2006 or seven. And they had a carbon, carbon trading, carbon farming um, meeting conference, whatever it is, workshop there. 
That was the first time I remember going to a group of people to talk about that, and I just went, oh, my God, that's got hairs on it. And ever since then, like I don't know how many years that is now, um, ago, 15, 14, <clears throat> I've just gone, you know, more agents coming in, more platforms. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just, I don't know, just haven't had the gahoonies to step in there just yet, you know, looking for the right opening. There's a pretty interesting model out at the moment called the Regen Farmers Mutual. By a guy called Andrew Ward. Oh, yeah, Andy you know Ward. Andrew? I owe him a phone call. Andrew, I'm sorry. I owe <laughs> you a phone call. Yeah, he's doing something with Young Farmers Connect. Oh, is it today? I did a post on it. Is it today, tomorrow? So, I think it's tonight. Yeah. But that mutual model, I think, is an interesting model because it mm. sort of goes back to the old. I mean, I won't, it's, it's wrong, the wrong language to call a co op, but it's the idea that a bunch of farmers get together yep. and you, you get the maximum income out of it so that you're not giving it away to a third party that you're actually getting together and providing kind of safety in numbers, which I think has, um, you know, is a pretty interesting model. And, and, and led by farmers and sort of still, you know, there's, there's a, it's, it's, it's a farm owned, but it's, it's not relying on too many exterior, external people and factors Mm. and players who probably just jump in going, well, you bit of coin in this. Um, Now tell me, I pulled a quote from somewhere um, Gabby and farmers' problems are readers' problems. Mm. Talk to me about that. Because mm. we haven't talked about eaters much, have we? No, no. And one of the um, conversations that alerted me to this was a guy called Mike Lee in in the US, and he's a future, a food futurist, which is an interesting. Futurists are they like wizards who They're just kind of crystal balling <laughs> about what happens with food, and cool. uh, and he was talking about food tribes and how increasingly the what we eat signals our identity. So when mm. we were teenagers, we would have determined our identity. You know, I what we were wearing or what music we were listening to and increasingly younger generations like my kids age 22 my son's got you know very uh clear about what he eats and the reason he eats it and values and um and I think that's a really interesting trend for farmers to be aware of uh and even that, you know, the regen, the idea of regenerative farming, you're seeing, I interviewed Vince Heffernan in the book. Um, the He's a lamb grower in Dalton, just out of Canberra. Uh, he sends his lamb to Feather and Bone, um, a butcher in Sydney. And they are creating, you know, a product where they can tell the story of the food where it comes from and people are paying a premium for it. Mm. So, you know, eaters are choosing to put or not their money where their mouth is and the idea that, you know, what a farmer does is separate to, you know, the food ingested by the eater I think is no longer you know, it just doesn't wash, right? It's um, This became clear to me when I was covering, in the drought, when I was covering the water debate. So the management, water management, the water market, the idea in Australia where you buy and sell water, it's just like any other thing. Commodity. Um, and 
people were saying, those bloody irrigators, those bloody irrigators, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to do what they do. And then they're eating the, their produce from mm. the supermarket. Like, how does that work? Mm. You can't be eating really, the, the product, like scoffing down your almonds and complaining about <laughs> almond growers. Oh, and your almond latte yeah. mocha yeah. chai. Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. I, so, I that. so that disconnection, I mm. think, really was one of the driving forces for for the book as well, because it was this. Uh, I wanted to put paid to that idea that farmers exact exist in this separate universe that is separate to me as an eater, and that what they do has nothing to do with me. Like I can have feel feelings about what they do. Um, but I can't disconnect myself from what they do. And I guess they can, in sourcing and, and, and finding, demanding that food, they can be um, contributing in a positive way to solving a, a problem or problems back at the farm somehow. I guess the more hands in between, the harder that is. It is, and I think that's why you've seen the rise in... in Businesses like Feather and Bone that kind of bring the story of the food. Farmers markets are a classic for that sort of thing. Um, there's an increasing buy-in. But what, whenever I start talking about this, and particularly when I talk to economists or, or um, agronomists or uh, people really involved in kind of supply chains, they say, well, you know, there's, there is a cohort of the population that can't afford it. And what do you do about them? And I would say somewhere down the food production chain, either the farmer or the environment or the eater or the government has to pay. So there is a cost of food produced and there's a cost in dollar terms, in production terms. There's also a cost in environmental terms. And if we are saying that we can't afford for food growers to charge the full cost of what it takes to produce the steak on your plate, well, you're either saying, okay, I can't afford it, but I want the farmer to pay for it, or I can't afford it and I want the environment to pay for it. <laughs> and at the same time, we're saying, what are we going to do to save the environment? Yeah. <laughs> so, You know, I think it, there's also, just to add to that too, and I've said it before, but I'm, I'm, and I'd actually love to do the maths on it. I think it's been done. But the theory, not so much a theory, but the concept of when someone's saying, I can't afford, I'm not saying that, that, that anyone's, you know, I'm not being judgmental. If that's what they feel, then that's absolutely fine. I would just sort of suggest... Okay, if 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 the belief is or the the experience is that um, that good food, let's just call it, you know, more nutritiously dense food, doesn't have to be organic, but just a you know, better type of food is more expensive and is unaffordable, <clears throat> then I think I would suggest looking at the rest of the shopping trolley might help steer that conversation to a place that might be a better way a better place. You know, what else is in the shopping trolley? So okay, you're gonna you, you want to put in the good stuff, the good fresh food, um, grass-fed meat, maybe not feedlot meat, whatever. But what else is in there? You know, what other processed food, which is not contributing to the environment in a good way, or your own health, what can we take out to offset that? 
You know, what are the empty carbs? What's the cheap food? What's the what's the food that's often even more environmentally criminal than you know the the two types of tomatoes? You know, the 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 conventionally grown one and the organic one. I don't know. I just think that there's it's it's a big it's a bigger conversation, I think, than just you know fresh food is more expensive or um, organic food is more expensive. And look. Everyone has their own situation and so on. It's just a, it's just a, I guess it's really just a suggestion, um, I reckon. And I always bring it back to policy. So what is a policy that would serve that? And mm. that is around transparency of nutritional value that could be on a shelf, on the price tag, um, and to give people a way of comparing because there's so much messy information when you hit a supermarket and you're you're hitting it after work and you're trying to get dinner on the table for the kids. So yeah. so making those calculations easily I think is kind of half the battle. Uh, there will always be a cohort who can't afford food nonstop, yeah. you know, like full stop. Um, but, but making those decisions easier is all about transparency and I think often big food, big food industries – don't like to make it transparent. No, because that sort of, you know, shines a light on whether it's nutrition or it's chemical load or it's, eth- you know, the, the treatment of the animals involved or whatever, and that's that can be a little inconvenient at times, mm. you know. And there's, you know, minutes away from apps being available um, to scan and nutrition, chemical load, you know, I don't think we're that far away. And that, that'll be that'll be a game changer. Mm. Talking about game changing, um, what... What opportunities do you think there are for farmers to, um, I don't know, whether it's changing their business model or do a better job again, what's the definition of better? Um, what opportunities are there out there for farmers economically or socially, culturally, to that you've identified in your book as the little pitter-patter of rain falls down? Yes, exactly. Um, we, we could get rained out here. Um uh, I would say again, it comes back to that transparency level. It's 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 finding ways to help farmers, and my thing is always that kind of middle group of farmers that I'm thinking about, that are either in between, you know, commodity growers, but in between the big and the very small, um, and and it's about you know making models that are easier for them because often they're getting. They're doing so much. Like this is getting turning into such a complex business, isn't mm. it? The farming business. You've got to be across so many things, particularly in a mixed farm where you, you know, you're trying to get the crop in and you're trying to keep the animals going and and you're trying to stay across, you know, markets and forward selling and all of that stuff. Like and there's a whole lot of tech that's sort of turning up, you know. Oh, okay. Sorry. You, you, I, she, you, you may have her now. <laughs> I'm not allowed to say your name. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> that sounds. Can I come along? That sounds interesting. <laughs> See you, farmer. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that is. It, it, there's a whole multiple layers of expertise that that we feel we must be all over. And I guess we've always been jack of all trades. Um, you know, plumbers and sparkies and vets and 
Well, that's it. I mean, that's the thing that really shocked me about farming is that I came into it thinking that it was a kind of quite a simple business, not <laughs> simple <laughs> as in simpleton, but as simple no, no, as yeah. in straightforward. Simple, like yeah. you grow crops, you know, there's a couple of sheep it in the rains, paddock, like yeah. it rains or it doesn't, no biggie. And I've realised how very complex it is and and that requires incredible talent and incredible dedication to do all of those things at the same time. And I think, and that's just what happens within the farm gate. I mean, there's obviously you know, phone calls to other people outside your farm and there's agents and whatever else, but it's all related to what's happening within generally within your the boundary of your farm. And then you sort of add in the... You sort of throw on the on the table the opportunity to value add or market your market your produce in a different way, as opposed to using it down the road to the local yards and selling it and that sort of thing. And that's like, oh my god! And you know, for people to get their head around that opportunity, that's a that's a whole another skill set mm. that one might feel they have to or want to get a handle on. You know, like okay, I've got a take my video around and video me farming or got to create a brand or I've got to talk to some butchers in Sydney or, you know, which I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think that's where a lot of value can be left or, or come back to the farm. Mm. But it's just another whole, um, another additional challenge. And that stuff I find really interesting because that also comes back to personality and um and desire, I guess. So what you've done in creating your brand would not suit the farmer or people who are less, um, less. Uh, what would I call it? Willing to do it. Yeah, willing to mm. put themselves out there because yeah. in some ways it's a very interior profession. You spend a lot of time in your own head and so if, you, if you're not a, a more extroverted person, the idea of selling a brand um, is really scary to some people and, and just not something they want to do. And Vince Heffernan, the lamb grower at Dalton, said to me, you know, I, it really makes me confused that um, farmers, there's no one like farmers who are happy to throw their hands up when their produce leaves the farm gate. They don't seem to care where it goes to or who consumes it because they're kind of on to the next lambing like, or on to uh, the next you, harvest. Yeah, yeah, it's gone yeah. and I can go through the cycle again. Mm. Whereas increasing the, that that portion past the, palm, past the farm gate is a really important factor and something that you can make money out of. Totally. It is, it is another skill set and it is... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's, and I think Vince is doing a wonderful job. He's won awards at the you know, Dishes Food Awards. Um, he, his personality is suited to mm. that. He can be a bit gruff sometimes. Did you find that? Vince won't listen to this anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call him gruff. You were saying, you, before we put before we put the thing on, you were saying he's so gruff. I was not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Vince. I was we alone. love you, Vince. We love you. <laughs> he does do a good lamb, though. He does do More lambs, biodynamic lamb. Mm. I'm going to interview Vince um, when I can. Last time I tried to track him out, which was a while ago, he was down at the coast. He sent me pictures of him like sitting on the beach or near the 
It's like I don't care where you are. Just if you just when you're at the farm, I need to talk to you. So uh, the point. I just want to make another point about what mm. he said, which was really interesting to me. So in the of the regen farmers, the so-called regen farmers that I've met, they often go into it um, for environmental reasons or animal welfare reasons. And Vince, I think, was one of the ones that said to me, I just looked at this economic model and thought this is, you know, just not working for me. When you say this one as in his previous model or the conventional model? His his previous model, which was, um, you know, a very conventional model. He's a sixth-generation farmer. He was saying, you know, I felt like I was getting screwed by the supermarkets Uh, I wasn't happy with it. And he goes to his agent and says, you know, I want to do this in a different way. And his agent says, well, find another agent. You weirdo. <laughs> Basically, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so that was really interesting to me that, you know, that was the economic thing that pushed him on. In the end, I mean, I, I, that's, I think that's a, that's, a, um, that's a pretty sensible place to start, isn't it? You know, because you're right, a lot of people, and I was, I have to say I was guilty of probably, um, looking at the, you know, the environment side of it. I mean, I guess everyone That's has their guilty, own reasons. Though. No, like, not, not well. I guess. I mean, it, we all have our own motivations, and there was equal. I don't know if it's equal portions, but it was certainly a number. It wasn't just like, oh, my trees are dying. I've got to do something about it. Or mm. my saws blowing away. You know, there are economic considerations, social, the whole thing. So it can be challenging. Talking about that, given your research, what. Are there paradigms, are there any particular paradigms or general paradigms that, you know, for people to change, you know, do a better job, whatever, again, that looks like? Are there any sort of paradigms you think that farmers have to or should get over? I think the last decade or so, the last two decades actually have been um, about productivity, really productivity focused. And I think the next couple of decades is going to be all about the environment, all about your landscape, all about your animal welfare. Like I don't think farmers can escape that. Um, There's very terse discussions, you know, particularly on social media around the use of chemicals. We're seeing legal cases around glyphosate, Roundup, um, and farmers say to me that, uh, you know, that that can't change. It's going to change the whole way we do things. Well, like the weather, like the climate, like the economic model, these things are going to come whether you like it or not. And I think preparing for those eventualities is just sensible because the consumers, the eaters, are really changing the way they think of things. And as, you know, we're going into the COP talks in Glasgow, um, as Europe is going to start um, changing the rules about what's imported into their, their borders, what, their, what the, um, you know, the environmental value in your landscape is, what you're putting back, I think all of those things are pushing us in that environmental, more environmentally minded direction. So people can dig their heels in, um, they can kick and scream, but it's it's changing. It's changing. I we I did a sort of carbon accounting 
uh, workshop, I guess it was, through land care and, you know, you, where you try and measure your emissions and all that sort of stuff. I think it's, I think that's coming at us so fast. Mm. Uh, and to resist, as they say, to resist is futile. But the important part of that is you've got to be at the table to explain the farming systems and the way they work. Meat is one example where it's not a simple black and white, eat meat, don't eat meat. Mm. You know, I think these are very uh, nuanced conversations, very complex conversations that farmers have to be involved in. Otherwise, it's designed by someone else Mm. without that input and without that um, very intimate landscape knowledge. Uh, And so for me, like that book is about, you know, trying to switch farmers on to that conversation that, you know, the policy debates <laughs> that are happening now, the, the policy debates are actually happening in Parliament this week and have been for a long time and, and will be for the coming months. Like those actual policy debates, how do you sequester soil carbon? You know, should farmers be paid for carbon and biodiversity? All of these things are happening in Parliament House, in the Chamber, this week, right now. How, because I, I often, you know, discuss with people the pros and cons of, you know, where, <clears throat> where one as an as a individual farmer, family, community, industry, where we could put our focus. And, you know, I, I, I my sense is a lot of people think, oh, government, like, you know, know, it's a bloody slog. Let's just get on and do it. Let's create the plat- the carbon platform or whatever it is. Let's just go and change. You know, try these different practices. Let's create our own markets. Let's and 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 you know, it's a it's a it's a ground on the ground led mm. revolution. You know, so is that something you feel is right, or you you get a sense of from other people, or do you think there's a real go forward opportunity by you know, engaging with politicians and in, in helping inform policy and change legislation? I guess what I would say is similar to the farmers that like to go out and sell their product compared with the farmers that are more um, introverted and, and are happy to deal, you know, behind the farm gate. It's the same in politics, right? So there are people... Farmers who want to go and design their whole new ways of looking after landscape, new ways of growing food, and they're they're doing it on the outside of parliament, they're doing it on the outside of the political system, or they're entering into partnerships with private companies. Um, we've seen you know payments for soil carbon, for example, with Wilmot Station and um, Cavan, with. With the payments coming out of the Microsoft Mm. Climate Fund. So that's an example of where people are doing it on the outside, getting together with another private company and doing that. But I think there's a really important piece for farmers getting involved in the conversation at a political level because politics designs legislation and regulation. And that design, for example, there's a carbon and biodiversity pilot scheme that pays farmers right now. That's going to determine what the policy is going forward. So if you're politically inclined, Mm. uh, you might 
be thinking about how am I going to engage with this? How am I going to get my views across to uh, politicians? Um, what would a good system look like? What would a fair system look like? Um, because we've all discovered basically that even though farming culture is often, you know, farmers often think of themselves as the lord of their domain within their boundary fences. What farmers do on their farms has a, has an effect outside the boundary fence, right? It has an effect on eaters, has an effect on the environment. And so there has to be this kind of, I think, a new social contract between eaters and farmers about how that affects, those effects flow both from the farm outside into the broader environment but also the eaters you know what they're paying who they're who they're encouraging back inside the fence was there ever an old social contract there was uh, in australian terms there was a social contract in that you know protection of agriculture uh which was basically you know price setting all of that stuff that That, was essentially yeah that was essentially (laughs) a social contract that says we we value what what we do what you do um and and it was more about government saying we need to encourage lots of exports in the early part of the colonial history to send back to Mother England so that they've got lots of wheat and lots of lamb chops. Mm. And so that how do we how do we how do we write that new social contract? What 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 needs to happen? Who are the players? Who's who's doing the copy? Who's putting this? I wrote a book. I wrote a book. That was my contribution. Uh, so it's quite a, it's quite a lengthy document. Then. It's quite a very lengthy <laughs> document. I damn near did my head in. I can tell you. Um, <laughs> it, no, seriously, you pull a. Uh, it was it was meant to be a simple story. You pull a thread of a farm and mm. and you kind of work out what system it is. But farming, I think, gets to really deep philosophical uh, debates pretty quickly about the way you want to organise society, how you value food, how you value looking after landscape. Like these are really kind of deep fundamental things and you can see it's done differently in different places. In Europe, the common agricultural policy is a massive, is the biggest mm. expense in in the European um, Parliament. You mean so, the, the subsidising and the yeah. we'll pay you not to grow yeah. that stuff? Yeah, or we'll pay you to grow stuff. We'll pay you whether you're um, making money or not mm. because we either value the food or we like the tourists going through the little villages and seeing all the little, you know, lammies uh, and, lammies the, and, the, and the canola fields. Um, you know, th- these are conscious decisions that government, governments make. The US has the US Farm Bill. That links together food and farming and is essentially a production subsidy. Mm. So all of these governments are trying to work out how to do this. That's a hard thing to unwind, isn't it? The production subsidy or the way that governments do it? Well, both. I yeah. mean, the, you know, the governments have set it up, you know, whether the cockies or the farmers were, you know, demanded it or it was just like, oh, that's a good idea, let's do this for the farmers. But, you know, there's, a, there's an entrenched attitude I imagine to that now, and to, to say for the government to turn around and go, "Hey, I'm going to pay you half what I used to," you know, just like that, or yeah, you know, just like big changes to that system would be challenging. 
Yeah, the the interesting thing is as the UK's come out or Britain's come out of uh, Brexit, they are changing their system so that they will no longer pay a production subsidy as they did when they were part mm. of the EU, but they will pay based on environmental services. So that it's a it's a it's a pivot. It's an absolute pivot. Oh, that's good. And I interviewed Dieter Helm, who's head of the UK Natural Capital Commission, about this, and he said it is like the biggest fundamental change in that country when it comes to farming because it's <coughs> cha- used to be paid on production based on how much land you had. So that that kind of entrenches the the, the system and the ownership and you start to pivot and pay for environmental services and then suddenly, you know, it's not the biggest farmer, it's the farmer that's doing things... It's the better a farmer. That is, uh, mm. ..that is better for the environment. Let's jump back to Eaters. Um, I, what did I read? Oh, that's it. What if, if, the, if, the, if the Eaters sort of ignore... Um, the the trend we're seeing of of you know um, or the opportunity they have to engage more directly with farmers, whether it's through food or going to a farm or you know that engagement, which I just think is a wonderfully healthy thing to do, especially for your kids. You know what what are the consequences of, of of just the status quo for a lot of people? Just you know ignoring that as an opportunity. You know, are they going to be like left behind? Is 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 health is is health like even more rapidly declining? Is it is it the is it sort of the the pulling apart of the of, of the urban social, you know, the cultural thing? I mean, food's got a really reasonably important role to play in culture, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely, it's a big part of culture. Uh, it's Food, I mean, I thought deeply about this. Food is so incidental now, like it's just everywhere, isn't it? It's just like drive-through coffee, you mm. know, can be can be fantastic and it can be shit. And um, I think the danger is if, the, if we don't bridge that divide between farmers and eaters that you get, Political disruption over the way, and we've seen that this week over the carbon debates and and whether we're in or not, and we've seen a lot of silly political debate. But, you know, it does create these divides in societies that are not healthy, and we saw that with Brexit. We saw it with Donald Trump in America, the the division between people in regional areas and people in, in metropolitan areas. And it does have an effect on the health of food, you know, the, the, the food that we want to encourage, good food, shorter supply chains. Um, I don't think we can just chuck out long global supply chains completely because I think the world does have uh, a responsibility to feed countries who can't feed themselves. But I think that if the lockdown taught us anything, it's that we need the short and the medium supply chains too for food so that people can get good local stuff. I mean, mm. these our local town here, all of the towns around here had a mill. It used to have a, a wheat mill. And, yeah. you know, in the middle of the lockdown, we couldn't get flour. We're on a wheat farm. And there's a there's an old rundown mill in town mm. that's not working because of competition policy 
because another big company swallowed it up and shut it down so that it wasn't competition. <laughs> it wasn't not unlike um, abattoirs, every town yeah, had an abattoir. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you saw what system. happened, particularly in America, the abattoirs in America were, um, you know, once they shut down, everyone started panicking because there were only big concentrated abattoirs mm. rather than the smaller ones dotted around the countryside. So you get an infection in one abattoir and it cuts down the supply chain to, to yeah. great big areas rather than just one little town. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not a good recipe for resilience, is it? It's not. Uh, it's not. It's like diversity. It's like farming itself, you know, to, to rely on any one thing. To have all your eggs in one basket is just not a smart mm. strategy. Yeah, I think diversity is um, reasonably important. I, that does remind me, I was involved with... Um, Farming advisory um, as a client, um, uh, you know, organisation, and and one of the things one of the things that was drummed into into us from an economic and a business model point of view, they used to call it diversity diversity. Oh, really? Because in some ways, because I mean, there's a point at which I think you can have too many enterprises on a farm, oh, and definitely. Like, and it sort of just takes away from the focus of you know a few. But I just I remember it's not diversity is king, as you know, just. Make sure you don't end up in the world of diversity. Um, I'm conscious of time. You have to go and inspect the implement. <laughs> You're running late for your machine inspection. Very quick one. Um, anything you're particularly irate about right now? Oh, God. I write about so many things. I'm one of those people that yells Top. at televisions, you know, the television news, you know. You don't have to watch it, what? You I don't have to watch it. I do because I'm a Pick journalist, right? I, mm. I'm a journalist. I can't help. What are you raging when 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 you're when you're yelling at the TV? What's on it? I'm I'm yelling at the sort of dumb policy debate around climate change. The idea that farmers, you know, even want to step outside of climate debates. Um, I think farmers are so essential. Uh, and land managers, Indigenous land managers, Indigenous farmers are so essential to how we go forward and solve the climate uh, issues that we're facing. And it's not that, like I don't think, from the science that I've seen and the research I've seen, farmers are never going to solve anything and why should they solve everything, right? I mean, sorry, farmers are never going to solve everything. Mm. They can't solve everything but... Uh, I think, you know, they have a pivotal role in in how we're going to negotiate these um, big climate debates going forward, how we're going to negotiate, you know, getting good, healthy, reasonably priced food. Um, all, all of these issues are really pivotal issues for me and when I see these dumb debates about, you know, um, in the federal parliament... Um, Oh, God, I can't even think of an example now. But, um, you know, it's just, it, it's ridiculous and it's simplistic uh, to think that farmers don't care about these things. Do they, do the, just about that, I mean, why don't politicians, I mean, is it fair to say they just don't get, a lot of them just don't get it? Like, is, do they get it, but they just, like, oh, it's not party policy, so I can't speak out, or there's other agendas at play, or they just don't think, oh, farmers, like, you know, food. Like what? How's that going to save, save the planet? Well, you know, it- I think I think part of it is farming is quite 
a, a, you know, in political terms, farming is is apparently a small constituency now in mm. terms. So the traditional parties like the National Party, uh, Matt Canavan said, you know, like he's a former mining minister, he thinks um, mining is, you know, dare I say it, more important uh, and... and Than farming. Well, yeah, he said, mm. you know, farm, farmers are a small percentage of our constituency now. So, you know, no biggie if, uh, if uh, you know, we're not sort of doing things that um, farmers might necessarily want. Uh, I just think it, it, it's, it's just, it doesn't truly reflect the, um, the part that farming plays in a lot of these country towns. You know, it's an important kind of cultural piece. Uh, farming is is obviously an important landscape piece. Farmers manage more than half of Australia's landscape. Like that's a big chunk of a big country. Isn't it interesting? So a big chunk of a big country, small constituency, like you know, doesn't matter. Don't matter too much. Mm. Even though, whoa, hang on, more mm. than half mm. under management, mm. influential decision making. On those, dare I say, resources that I trust are being used usefully, time. Mm. One last question: You draw. You, you've got the opportunity to put a billboard. I've actually got a billboard ready to go on the Hume Highway, just down there at Dugong. Oh, I really? have it. I'm lying. Mm. But if I did, and you could put a phrase, quote, question, whatever, what would it be? You had the opportunity to to influence the how travellers thought while they read that sign till they got to the next bit? I can't decide. It's the food. You you can have front and back. You can have two. You can have the front and the back. So, okay, on the front I would put, it's the food stupid. (laughs) And on the back I'd put, it's the land stupid. Cool. Cool. Because I think those two things are critical mm. to our future going into 2050. Awesome. Gabby, I must let you go. Um, that is wonderful. Go. Where can people find um, why you should give a fuck about farming? Oh, we said it. We no, said I it. do. I swear <laughs> often. I just wanted you to feel uncomfortable saying it. <laughs> uh, you can find it at all good bookstores online. <laughs> Yeah, anywhere in particular? Uh, Is there one you want to give a plug to and go go to that bookshop? Mm, local bookshops. Or uh, just go go to your local bookshop yeah, maybe and ask for Yeah, just go to your local it. I'd 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 prefer if you supported your local bookshop mm. so that they can sell books from writers like me and my friends. And um, Charles Massey, Mr. Massey says everything a potential game-changing book should be. Yes. What he's a lovely fellow. He's a very kind man. Oh, he's probably being very honest. He's was, kind and I was, honest. I was terrified when I sent it to him to yeah. read. <laughs> Were you? Yeah. He, yeah. He, he's had a, has he had an influence on you? Yeah, he has. He has. Like, he's a really courageous bloke. Totally. You know, his, his, his book, Call of the Red Warbler and, and the SRS book, you know, the war book beforehand, He's someone I think actually might have a little bit of oppositional defiance disorder himself. 
<laughs> dare I say it? <laughs> but he doesn't. But he does it in such a nice such way. A nice such a gentle. I know. Yeah. Can I just tell you? Don't one talk. Th- his don't puppy ties up too much. He doesn't no, no, need it. I've just got to tell you one thing. <laughs> I, my first writers' festival that I did for Rusted Off, and I was on with Charlie. Mm. And we you was, mean on the on the stage with him, like a yeah, panelist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And I was. We were signing books afterwards, and this lady came up to me afterwards and said. Do you know if Charlie's married? <laughs> that old silver fox. <laughs> yeah, and what did you say? I said, no. yes, he is married. Oh, you had the perfect opportunity to wind him right up there or have him get into trouble. That's a classic. Oh, he's a tall, good-looking oh, no. man. I know. I could see the whole Charles. audience was in love with him. Swooning. No, well, I just love his articulation and he's, he, you know, he's, you know just, he's such a sincere, not earnest, it can be at times, but that's a good thing. But he's just a, such a lovely. I'd I'd interviewed him down at his place at um, um, at Seven Park there at Cooma last year, and he. That's right. Just very quickly, um, he. I rang him. You know, he texted me at about six in the morning because I had to get up and get down there and make sure it was all. And he said, "Oh, I've had a sniffle all night. I might have got something from the kids." It was like you know, uh, July last year, so it was the middle of the. You know, COVID show, and he went, oh, it might be best we don't do it. And I lay there for five minutes and said, I can't believe it. And I just said, Charlie, I don't care, I'm coming. I'll get and COVID. Went, and I, got, I don't care, this is too, 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 too much of an opportunity because it had taken a bit of dancing around to get to that. To that so glad I did. So glad I came over here today um, because Burua and Hanamino is not far away. It's just over no, those hills like back over all. that way. Yeah. And um, I've so enjoyed our little chat and the birds have two little blue wrens. Yeah, lots of blue wrens. Awesome. And the rain is um, just Held stayed off. away. Yeah. And, but I know you need to get to your next um, engagement and I'm going to get you to sign my book before we go, talking about book signings. Um, and thank you so much, um, Gabrielle. We, yeah, thank you for sharing your regenerative journey and your thoughts on, on the world. Thanks very much, Charlie. I love Good. <laughs> good. You better have. <laughs> After all that. It was Thanks, really Gabby. good. Thanks, Gabby. It was really good. And next week's episode of The Regenerative Journeys with Adam Gibson. He's a, he's a farmer. He's a business coach. He's an ex-gym junkie. Uh, he's on his own regenerative journey on his farm where I caught up with him in the northern rivers of New South Wales. And uh, I trust you enjoy that episode of The Regenerative Journey with Adam Gibson. This podcast is produced by Reese Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.